0: Welcome to the Primate Cast.
1: We're your hosts, Andrew McIntosh. And Chris Martin. So normally, we like to start our podcast by giving a brief introduction of our guests and talking a little bit about why they're here. But in this case, we have a bit of an exception because our guest actually needs no introduction.
0: That's right. We think most of our listeners are familiar with our guest today, who is Dr.
1: Jane Goodall. Yeah, and so she's going to start the interview by going right into why she's here in Japan.
2: Well, I've been coming to Japan at one time, it was every year, and then it was every other year, because, um, the well, first of all, to visit Tetsuro Matsuzawa, whom I've known forever and ever, and to meet Ai, and then Ayumu, and see what was going on, and meet the students. But at the same time, also going to other parts of Japan and trying to develop our youth program, Roots & Shoots, which is now in one hundred and thirty-two countries around the world.
1: Wow, it's, ever growing.
2: It's ever growing, but um, I always, you know, I think the last, the last visit, or even the last two visits, I never managed to get to see I or to come here. But every year I've been coming to Saga, mm. to the big, the big conference. Yeah.
1: Which is this year in Hokkaido. Um, yes. We'll probably come back to. Uh, you're visiting PRI and the chimpanzees here. But first, as we've heard from a a a previous podcast with Professor Matsuzawa, possibly the first encounter you had with Japanese primatologists was actually at Gombe.
2: It was... um, My first meeting was with uh, um, Dr. Itani and the famous Imanishi. Right. Um, Yes, they came to visit Gombe. Actually, the very first visitor was... um, was Dr Itani hmm. and he <laughs> he got off the water taxi because we're on the edge of the lake and my mother was in the camp because it was in the early days and the authorities said I couldn't be on my own so she volunteered to come for four months i was up in the hills as usual and um <laughs> dr itani got off this water taxi just with his sleeping bag rolled around him and he said uh, with the japanese bow Dr. Leakey tells me not to come. I am here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the thing was that on their way from Kigoma, which isn't very far, it's about 12 miles, they had to stop because there was a um, water spout, which are quite dangerous. And so this water taxi had to pull into the shore. And he still believes. I think we <laughs> still believed to the end of his life that it was uh, Louis Leakey's spirit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, it was a big sure. And then he came back with with Professor um, Imanishi later. Hmm. Yeah.
0: So, Professor Zitani and Imanishi, of course, came from Kyoto University. And when they weren't exploring Africa, they were here setting up the PRI. So, there's kind of a long history there. And I'm interested to ask you about your interactions here at the PRI, and uh, especially with the chimpanzees here, kind of the history of that and your friendship with Chimpanzee I.
2: Well, I suppose I first met I when she was very young, and, and I suppose at that time her tasks were very simple. They seemed quite complex to me. I think looking back on it, they would be very, very easy tasks for her. And then after that, you know, I went to see her each time. And there was one occasion when I was... I can't remember exactly how it worked, but I was looking through this glass. Yeah, I remember. And uh, I used to get very frustrated if she made a mistake and the computer too many times went bing, you know, so she didn't get her reward. And she bristled up. And uh, I I think it was... uh, I suppose, I suppose it was Tetsura who told me that she would come and hit the glass, but it was fine; it was bulletproof glass. And so she all did her bristling up, and she rushed towards where I was peering through this little window, and she stopped and she kissed me through the glass. And this was a cause of great, and she did that twice in the same session. So I think we never forgot that.
0: Mm. And you've met so many chimpanzees in your lifetime, probably more than anybody else. So I'm interested in what you think of how the chimpanzees here kind of compare to other chimpanzees.
2: Well, I mean, the, the new facility is mind-blowing. It's mm-hmm. just incredible. Uh, I wish more captive chimps could have something similar, but of course they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, the chimps themselves, well, it's really when you start working with these beings and expecting that they're going to perform well, that you find out a whole lot more about their mind when you ask the right questions, when you know the chip well enough to realize what they might be good at doing and don't bother with the stuff they probably will be bored with and won't want to do. And I think the fascinating thing was finding how how much I enjoyed coming and being challenged by the by the computer. Couldn't wait to get to her to her task. And what sometimes well, I watched her ask to do it again
0: mm-hmm.
2: if she made mistakes. She does do that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and kind of making a, a, a kind of broader picture of this, I'm wondering what you think kind of the role of chimps in captivity should be. I mean, here we focus on their cognition, and but in general, what do you think it, the, it's good for?
2: Well, education is one mm-hmm. if they're exhibited in the right sort of way. Um, yes, learning more about their intellect is very useful, especially if you've been watching them only in the wild and you have a feeling that, well, this looks really intelligent behavior, but I don't see it very often, I can't really prove it. And then you get information coming from some cognitive research and you think, well, yes, of course. I mean, I knew it was intelligent. Here's some nice proof that they can do things like this.
1: Mm-hmm. And of course, the, the Jane Goodall Institute has already established, I suppose, a number of sanctuaries and things for the the chimpanzees that were unfortunate to have been removed from their native habitats.
2: Yeah, these are the orphans of the bushmeat trade mostly, but we still carry on the research at Gombe. Mm -hmm. I get there twice a year, I don't do the research anymore, but we have a great team, small, because it's a very tiny national park, and all the data now is being digitised, so right from 1961 to the present at Duke University. It's big... Big and, you know, project. Every year we carry on with this research mm-hmm. is makes the study one year more valuable because, you know, chimps can live to be... The oldest is meant to be 75, which is a pretty old lady. Mm-hmm. And she lives... I love it. She lives in Florida, where people go to retire. <laughs> <so many people. laughs> you know, she's called Little Mama. I know her very well. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's quite a character. But... Um, so, our, you know, our Gombe studies now only in its 54th year. Chimps so can live longer than that. It's amazing. Really got a smattering from that study site of life histories, really.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's amazing to imagine a field site that has so much longevity still just spanning less than a generation of the animal under study. Mm.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and we're still learning new things. I mean, you know, and for the first time now, we can be assured who the fathers are by collecting faecal samples, getting DNA profiling done. We used to guess before, and we Mm -hmm. were nearly always right, it turns out, but um, now we know, now we know for sure. So it opens up whole new areas of study. Is there a way a male could possibly identify his own offspring, or the offspring his father, when there's no permanent pair bond, and when the female's likely to be mated by all the males? Well, these are fascinating questions.
0: Do you think since you could recognize you said you were mostly right. So if the humans can recognize who the fathers likely are, do you think the chimps can also? Make I do not know. We, we did
2: it um, based on the fact that in the wild, the male will take a female off on a consortship. I see. Which can last for two weeks, and so as we have records of of their cycles, you know, you can sort of mm-hmm. work out. Oh, no, she, she was away with that male for two, three weeks, mm-hmm. and eight lunar months later, she has a baby. And as the male tries to keep her completely to himself, he takes her to the edge of the periphery of the range. Mm-hmm. So normally we're right. So I don't know whether this honeymoon thing gives the male an understanding <clears> of <throat> who is in who his infants so are, maybe.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad that you're, <clears throat> so far we've talked both about the scientific study of the chimpanzees, but also the conservation. and. So at this year's Congress of the International Primatological Society John Oates was awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award for his work in the conservation in Africa And he, during his uh, acceptance speech he made the or he was talking about the role of, of let's say young primatologists especially in the future of, of primatology and the and, uh, conservation of, of primates around the world and it started me thinking about this uh, and for somebody like you it's a very relevant question at what point did it become apparent to you that, in addition to the scientific study and understanding the species, that there was also a great need for conservation and spreading that information around mm. to a global audience?
2: It was a kind of boom moment. <clears throat> it was a conference in Chicago, way back when. Uh, actually, I, I'm sure that's the first time I met Dr. Matsusawa because he came over with his brand new information about I and and. Uh, we had a session at this Understanding Chimpanzees conference on on conservation. And it was completely shocking. It was utterly shocking. Like all the way on every study site across Africa, forests disappearing, chimps caught in snares, and the beginning of the bushmeat trade, the commercial hunting of wild animals for food. And we also had a a session of secretly filmed video from medical research labs, from training of circus chimps, and, you know, by this time, I had my PhD, I had the life I dreamed I was a child, I was out in the field, I was analysing data, writing some stuff, building up a research centre. It was totally the ideal life. And I just came out as an activist. Hmm. I don't remember making any conscious decision. It was just, okay, I've had the gyms that give me all this, now I've got to try and do something for them.
0: Hmm. So that was the 1986
2: conference? Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay and that, that happens every 10 family. years now that
2: conference well it was supposed to happen every 5 years okay but it <laughs> costs money to have conferences I see. like that mm.
0: but clearly it was a really important meeting if it kind of spurred this interest in conservation
2: well i mean for me it was just mm. totally life changing mm-hmm. yeah you know, and then i began travelling in africa to the range countries talking to ngos on the ground researchers Tried to get up to some, you know, like the minister of the environment, or usually it was a first lady. You could seldom get to the president, and um, it was it was during that that I realised, you know, more and more about the problems faced by the Africans and the poverty and the and the disease and the lack of education, and it became pretty obvious to me that if we can't improve the lives of the people living around the wilderness areas, that we can't, conservation will never really work. And so we started our Takari program.
1: Mm-hmm. So do you, do you see, um, so one of the things that I often think about is that for young scientists now, for young primatologists, there's so much emphasis on this publish or perish regime in academia. So in order to secure positions in the future, in universities, for example, uh, it really does take a lot of devotion to that topic. And then conservation on the other side also requires incredible devotion so what do you see the role of a young primatologist for example?
2: Well I suppose the young primatologist who's really interested in a scientific career they better go for that first but they're going to be pushed up against conservation all the time Mm -hmm. because almost everywhere you go now there are threats to the chimpanzees or other primates so it's hard to avoid but uh, you know first things first get your degree, get a get a name, get a recognition, and then maybe it'll be a bit easier to, to, to do something for conservation.
1: Yes, yeah, so you're a very perfect example of this story. Right
2: here. And then finally, you know, okay, so we can, we can desperately work to study chimps in the wild. We can fight to conserve them. We can fight to conserve the forests. And yet none of this is going to be the slightest use unless young generations are growing up to be better stewards of this planet. You know, it's not just conservation in Africa and other places where the primates live. It's the whole flipping planet. Mm -hmm. And it's the chimps, it's the chimp studies that give me this million-dollar question. The million-dollar question is, because we're closer to chimps and bonobos than anything else, as a platform to say, okay, but we're different. And what is that difference? And, okay, take I and Ayumu as prize examples of how intelligent chimpanzees can be in the right situation. Compare that brain with the brain that sent a robot up to Mars that's crawling around taking photos. I mean, you can't really compare the two. And so the question is, if we are, and we surely are, the most intellectual being that's ever walked the planet, how come we're destroying our only home? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's because we've lost wisdom. Mm -hmm. We make major decisions based on how will this affect me now or the next political campaign, usually the next shareholder meeting. And it used to be decisions based on how will this affect our people generations ahead? Mm -hmm. And that's forgotten for the bottom line, this materialistic life, this crazy search for money and more money and more money Mm -hmm. you know and it was Gandhi who said the planet can produce enough for human need but not for human greed so the chimps led me to this question Mm -hmm. to which I had no answer
1: Mm -hmm. so what's next for me? for you yes Just
2: I don't know how long I will physically be able to carry on traveling 300 days a year but as long as I can, I suppose I will. Mainly because it makes a difference. You know, in, in, um, in uh, Jay Sue's lab yesterday, there were about 20 students, and at least a quarter of them said, well, I'm a, I decided to do, um, you know, go into biology, uh, primatology, because of you, because I read your books when I was in, in um, grade school. So, you know. It
1: does make a difference. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Well, Dr Goodall, again, thank you very much for joining us here on The Primate Cast. you so much. This has been great. All right.
2: Thanks. You have been listening to The Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world, brought to you by the Center for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology of the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University.